Since 2009, Kevin Williams has taken an interest in food storage and prepping. He has taken this interest into an art starting in 2014. While not a full prepper yet, he has created a podcast where we can come together and talk about canning, other means of food storage, homesteading, gardening, farming, ranching, prepping, and politics. That's why it's called Canning Plus 7. Canning Plus 7 Other Topics. Now, here is the Canning Plus 7 podcast with Kevin Williams. Well, and that's the thing. You know, I tell people that if they if they think that the government's going to be there to help them, regardless of the catastrophe or calamity, that's fine. But you also have to consider, again, there could be job losses. How many people sure. lost their jobs and their businesses in, you know, 2020, 2021 with all the businesses that shut down? And also you could have an illness, somebody that could come down with a, a medical diagnosis that could be financially devastating. And then you're you're faced with a really uh, unpleasant choice of feeding your family or getting medical treatment. So, you know, it can be a very personal reason for preparing. It doesn't have to do with, doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with social unrest or EMPs or, you know, you know, pick your calamity. But these are things that happen to every family, loss of employment and illness. Welcome to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. Today is Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. Suzanne C. Sherman was my guest again. We talked about a book called Food Preservation Strategies. We talked about canning, freeze-drying, why it might be better to make your own freeze-dried meals as opposed to buying them commercially. We also talked about canning, glassing, and we talked about storing meat. I'm actually excited for the next podcast that I'm doing with Suzanne Sherman. We're going to do a podcast on another book she wrote called The Lost Frontier, great book. I've actually read a sample version of it. I haven't read the whole entire thing yet. And let me tell you something new that has come to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. Our email address has changed. Yes, I had some problems with Proton Mail uh, password issues. So write down this address, canningplus7 at startmail.com. That's C-A-N-N-I-N-G-P-L-U-S, the number 7, at startmail.com. You can still check us out on Facebook. That's C-A-N-N-I-N-G, the plus sign, number 7. So that's on Facebook, C-A-N-N-I-N-G, the plus sign, and then the number 7. All right, I am excited for this podcast. I know that you'll enjoy it. Suzanne Sherman's always been a great guest. The thing I like about Suzanne Sherman is she's very dynamic, has a lot to say, and that's really what makes a good guest on the podcast. Now, I've had other great guests too, don't get me wrong, but Suzanne Sherman is a great guest, always comes prepared, extremely dynamic, and of course, uh, she has a lot of insight. So enjoy the podcast with Suzanne C. Sherman as we talk about the book, Food Preservation Strategies. This is the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, podcasting to you from Billings, Montana. Suzanne Sherman is my guest today. How are you, Suzanne? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. We had a lot of technical difficulties, but the bottom line is we got it fixed and we're back. I was trying to test out a new piece of technology because I love testing out technology, but Suzanne said there's a hiss in your microphone, and so did someone else. So we're back on Zoom, but the bottom line is we're here. 
We're going to talk about a great book that I think is exceptionally good about uh, food preservations and strategies. What gave you the idea to come up with that book? You know, it took me back to when I started my endeavors, my adventures in preparedness, and I really didn't know where to start. I had been concerned about earthquakes living in California and putting away a few duffel bags of food was a good solution for that. But as I could see the, I guess, geopolitical climate changing, so to speak, I decided it was going to be necessary to prepare. You know, in California, we had a lot of rolling blackouts, a lot of social unrest and uh, that sort of thing. So I decided I wanted to start putting food away for longer term strategy for a longer term. So I started looking at ads and some of them were $4,000 for a year supply of freeze dried prepackaged food buckets, that sort of thing. And I felt really behind the eight ball on getting all my food going. So I was tempted to buy one of those, but I went to a class and one of the instructors said, that, you know, if you try to live exclusively off of these commercially freeze-dried products, you're not going to survive at all. So I decided to start growing my own food and coming up with uh, creative ways to preserve that for the longer term, from the basics of hot water bath canning to pressure canning, and now I'm freeze-drying. And I decided to write this book for somebody that was in a a situation that I was, that really realized there was a a need for long-term food preservation strategies. The book is called Food Preservation Strategies. And how I would have appreciated the information laid out in this format. It's not a very long book, but it gives you many techniques, and you can pick and choose what works best for you. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, some of it bought back some pretty good memories. Now, why? what was his reasoning? Because I have my own reasonings. What was his reasoning to not buy these freeze-dried commercial products? Well, he wasn't saying don't buy them. And actually, on my website, SuzanneCSherman.com, I wrote an article about the dangers of long-term of uh, the freeze-dried, commercial freeze-dried food products. And yeah. his, his concern was the amount of sodium, of the oh. amount of sodium content yeah. in them. So that- the reason being, you know, these were great for if you're on, you know, an outpost, if you're in the military and to eat these for a few days, but they were never intended for... Uh, to be the exclusive part of your diet. And he said, if you try to live on this exclusively, it's going to kill you. It's going to really stress your kidneys. And I, I agree. So, I mean, I, I do have some of them, but it's it's part of my food preservation strategy program uh, and a small part at best. That is a legitimate complaint. My father, when he was alive, had the same issue. He had salt issues and high blood pressure. That is very legitimate. I want to come back to freeze-dried food, but let's talk about alcohol. Now, I don't drink alcohol, but I can see where you might want to put alcohol in your food storage, even though I'm not, I don't drink at all, but I could see if, let's say, if you have a real bad cough and there's no medication, you might want to have some whiskey. Obviously, you don't want to drink a whole bunch if you don't want to get drunk uh, for people like me, but maybe a teaspoon, a half teaspoon, where else would you want to put alcohol in your food storage? Well, I, I've never been of the mindset that I've used whiskey for treating colds or anything like that. One thing I do keep on hand is a large bottle of the cheapest vodka you can possibly buy. 100 proof is best if you can find it because you can use it to make tinctures. So you can make a remedy that will actually help your lungs as opposed to uh, using whiskey and starts and using that. I also use alcohol as part of, you can make your own sanitizer for that. Oh. I use it to, 
clean out my freeze dryer when I need to as well. And it doesn't leave any residual scent uh, that a, a household type cleaner, commercially purchased cleaner would. Also, if you get the small bottles, I guess that they used to have, or I guess they still have on airplanes, those one ounce little bottles, those are great for barter if you need it for that as well. And some people like to cook with alcohol. In the follow-up book to food preservation strategies, it's called Doomsday Dining, Recipes from Camp Apocalypse. I tell you how to incorporate the food that I teach you how to store into a, a menu plan that your family will also not only just eat to survive, but can enjoy and really thrive when you need to rely on your emergency food storage. Yeah, good idea. And this is on your website? Uh, you can order all three books. They're all available on Amazon, but the links for them are all on my website, SuzanneCSherman.com. And the reason I did mention alcohol is I keep beer on hand. I'm not a beer drinker, but there's a recipe on there using self-rising flour for using, uh, it's called basic beer bread. So stuff like that. You can use it for barter. You can use it. Some people might want to drink it. Uh, some people enjoy a little wine. I enjoy a little wine every once in a while, but mm -hmm. I certainly don't make it part of my survival regimen. Um, but again, to have alcohol on hand for tinctures, for barter, for cleaning, for sanitizers. And if you don't think that you can survive without your gin or whatever it is, that is your, your poison of choice. I'm not, I'm kidding. I don't consider it poison, but whatever it is you like, then by all means, make that part of your, your, uh, program and have some, if that's going to be your morale booster and keep you happy, then by all means store as much as you want. Yeah, I was going to say, you might want to keep, and I'm glad you said this, Suzanne, you might want to keep alcohol on hand, even if you don't drink, even if you are an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, an active Baptist, whatever, you might want to have it on hand for bartering because there might become a day, there may be a day where the money system in this country is not good, the electronics don't work, so there goes your digital currency, and you might want to have alcohol and cigarettes on hand. And by the way, Glenn Beck, I have my issues with Glenn Beck, but even Glenn Beck said in his TV show years ago when he started it on the blaze back when it was GBTV, keep cigarettes and alcohol around. I think this is what he was referring to, don't you? I don't know if he mentioned cigarettes. I, my understanding, I don't smoke cigarettes, is that either. they will go stale. So if you have a place to possibly keep a carton frozen. Absolutely. And, and, you know, if we're talking about a post-collapse scenario, I don't think anybody that smokes that wants cigarettes is going to care if they're stale or not. I, I personally don't store cigarettes. I don't care to have them. I don't store liquor for barter. I live in a very remote area and I'm not going to be welcoming uh, strangers to come barter here. And oh, you're I, so mean, Suzanne. <laughs> so, um, you know, I do have I have food items to give to somebody if they were in my community that needed to be helped out. But I think if you are if you are set and you have what you need and you want to include that in there, that's fine. Or if you think that that's going to help make your position more secure and be able to acquire services, for instance, if you want to trade if you know somebody in the trades or plumbing or that sort of thing, electricians, and they would be happy to accept that, that's fantastic because there are a lot of people that do and will continue to consider that um, very you know, important in their lives. So for me, I could live just fine without it. I do still keep some on hand, 
for making bread. I keep some wine on, in the house as well. Nothing that I consider, uh, wow, am I going to have this 25 years out? I just, you know, that's not that important for me. There are other things I'd rather have on hand. And then also oh, yeah. you can learn if it's that important to you, you can also consider learning how to make mead on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about vitamins and cooking oil. Is there a good way to store vitamins and cooking oil to make it last longer? I don't know how long cooking oil lasts. I've never checked. But let's say you want to cook with vegetable oil, olive oil, Crisco, and uh, you want to store vitamins. So what's a good way to, uh, to store those? Because right now, the recommendation is vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, zinc, and that one thing that starts with a Q that I can never pronounce that delivers the zinc throughout your body. Quercetin? Yes, quercetin. Thank you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have some of that. I also have some micronutrients in, uh, it's just a, a green powder, you know, from vegetables that uh, you can incorporate and get a lot of your multivitamins in there. Uh, a lot of vitamin A, vitamin K, stuff like that. I also keep the emergency. No, I'm not sponsored by them. Wish I was, but I keep the big packages of those in my pantry as well and individual packets so you can open them as you need it. Those seem to do well. I think if you have a storage place that's, you know, on the cool side and dark or a root cellar, if you have it, you want to store stuff where it's going to stay dry, but also be away from the heat and the light. So long, I, I, I have multivitamins around here, but I don't have a set, uh, package. I don't have a set of multivitamins to last me, say 10, 20 years out, 25 years, like freeze drying wood. I think if you get to a point uh, at that point, you know, again, I have the powders of the micronutrients. I have some protein powders and things like that, but I think it's a really important skill to learn how to forage. I mean, I have almost every vitamin I need growing in my, in my property here. I mean, dandelions for, da for, you know, vitamin C. I have so many different types of plants and edible plants you can eat out here. I don't get into edible plants in this book, but I do get into some primitive ways of storing food. Uh, I have watercress, for instance, in my creek. I have hemlock for uninvited guests. So, you know, there's just something there. If, if you want to concern yourself with nutrient content, as you should, uh, not only store some vitamins and stuff that's easy to keep, like the protein powders, vitamin powders, but also, you know, consider learning what forageable edible plants that have solid nutritional value are in your immediate area. Yeah, like you said, dandelions is uh, great. Actually. Oh, yeah. In fact, yep. uh, dandelions is great to make uh, tea, make tea out of. And uh, yep. I do drink, even though I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, I do like a glass of herbal tea every now and again. So there you go. It, is that forbidden? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some people think it is, but I haven't read anywhere where it is. Yeah. Anyway, um, so let's talk about storing meat. I really like your section on storing meat. I'm a meat eater at heart. I love eating meat. Um, what do you do? And, and now I don't think you can store jerky without salting it, correct? Because you did mention that the insects... I think the purpose of storing uh, jerky with salt is the insects, correct? You want to, this, what the salt does is remove the moisture from it to make it last longer. And then what it does is create an environment that is inhospitable to bacterial growth. Yeah. So I have made jerky before in a, using a dehydrator and I used some commercially um, packaged or some commercially available 
I guess, seasonings for it and curing salt, which has sodium nitrates and sodium nitrite in it. So if you do want to use that, you, you need to have that added ingredient other than uh, ingredients, beg your pardon, other than just the sodium chloride, which is your table salt. So it has to have that. I personally don't make a lot of jerky because I find it's really hard. I use it from my, my elk harvest to get the slices that are uniform and to get it to really um, dry at a consistent and even pace. I have, I feel like I have to really baby it and make sure everything is, you know, drying it so I don't over dry some and then under dry others. But when I have made some, I don't like it really dry. So there's going to be some moisture in it. And I've had some go bad. So what I do, some that people have given me go bad. So what I do is I vacuum seal it and I keep it in the refrigerator, which is again, not optimal for long-term preservation. But, you know, if you do want to do that, you can, you can dry it and cure it with salt and then have a way to store it as well. Again, it's not my favorite method of storing meat, but if you have to resort to the primitive methods of it, I get in there too, where you talk about smoking and dehydrating and salting as well. Yes. Now, can you, uh, I guess you probably can't store meat for too long then or jerky. I'm just thinking if somebody like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast has high blood pressure problems or something like that, they're going to have a hard time eating jerky. I, I guess there's probably no way to store it without salting it then. Correct. Or yeah. That's really not. Yeah. Okay. That's not an optimal solution for somebody that has, you know, issues yeah. with hypertension and has to really watch their salt mm -hmm. intake, but you can also pressure can it without adding any salt whatsoever. So that's a great way to preserve it. I have some that's eight years old and I've opened it again. I have a pantry. There are no windows, so it gets no light and it's very cool in there. It's about 50 degrees. So it's oh, not wow. quite a root cellar, but it's also the good thing about that is it's also dry. So I keep all my canned goods in a dark, cool pantry, and I have a lot of ground of meat in there. I have some uh, deer meat that I put in cubes and brined and pressure canned it that way. And through the process, you can eat it right out of the can. I also have ground up a lot of elk and venison, and I'll add some onions and salt and pepper to that and yeah. pressure can it. And I don't like to add seasonings to make it specific for a certain recipe, for instance, taco meat or for chili. I'd rather have the um, the availability to decide what I want to do with that meat. And then I can add whatever I want to after the fact, or I'll put some in, in sauce, you know, in tomatoes, cause I grow a lot of tomatoes and make a ready-made pasta sauce for that. So I like to have a, my strategy for food preservation is to have a lot of canned goods that are easily accessible that you can open and eat right away, even if you don't want to have to reheat them. You will not have to heat them if they've been properly pressure canned. You can eat them straight from the canning jars. I've made, I try to make things like soup, stew, chili, things that you can buy hearty soups from, but they don't have that tin can flavor. And you oh, also yeah. can, again, I, I don't add salt to much of mine because I figure if we need to add some later, we can do that. So I have the most flexibility. So if for some reason, say my health condition changes and I have to monitor my sodium intake, that's already been handled. Yeah, good point. Now, I want to talk real quick about vacuum packing food. I know people who will buy a Papa Murphy's pizza and then they will put it in a vacuum pack, their leftover pizza, and put it in the fridge 
Is that safe to do, or is there another technique to store vacuum-packing food? And how long should it be in the vacuum-packed for, and what are the do's and don'ts there? Well, you know, I, I vacuum pack a lot of my meat. Um, I don't, like, for instance, when I'm processing my elk, I'll take some steaks and the back straps, and I vacuum pack those and put those in the freezer. And they say one to two years for the freezer. I've had some longer than that. I think the vacuum packing really helps prevent it from getting freezer burn, provided the, the bags don't fail. So you have to be careful how you package or how you place them in the freezer so it doesn't uh, get torn. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, if people want to put frozen pizza or vacuum pack free pizza and have it in their freezer, that's that's fine. I don't like to have a majority of my food in the freezer in the, you know, in case in case you have a long term power outage that oh, yeah. food is not going to last you very long. So or if there's a mechanical failure, I know somebody that had returned from a fishing trip in Alaska and all the beautiful, I think 160 pounds of salmon in their freezer went bad because the freezer, there was a circuit break or, or the it, a malfunction, it just stopped working and all that meat went to waste. So if you're going to put a significant amount of your, of your stored foods in a freezer, you better monitor it on a regular basis, make sure it hasn't gone off. Because again, if there's a long-term power outage, it's not going to last very long. No, and as a matter of fact, I I, I have a correction to this guy actually puts his frozen uh, his Papa Murphy's pizza in the fridge vacuum packed. I don't know if that's good or not. Seems like well, be I mean, to me, that's that's not going to make it last too much longer. I wouldn't keep it there any longer than I would keep any other food because again, now yeah. we're not really talking about air getting to it, but we're also talking about the temperature. Yeah. which bacteria can form. So, you know, if you want to vacuum pack your food and put it in the freezer and keep it for a week, maybe longer, that's fine. But by all means, it's not going to be a long-term strategy, but it'd be throwing it away or my chickens would be probably delighted if I threw it out for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would imagine uh, you said a year or two at the most, if you're going to vacuum pack, uh, let's say a pizza or something and you put it in your freezer, of course, like you said, the power might go out and you don't want that. So, uh, no, and he Oh, what? No, go ahead. Oh, I was just, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's the issue with the freezer. So again, have a strategy. If you have a lot of food in the freezer to maybe, uh, have, have the group of neighbors come together and know that this is what we're going to go through first. I have some meats that we'll use first. Somebody else might have something else that lasts longer. And then you come together that way. I had a friend that lived through hurricane Katrina and that's exactly what their community did. They got mm -hmm. the grills out once the water went. I, I don't think they were flooded, but they got the grills out and everybody started grilling what was in the freezer. And, you know, if somebody didn't have power or somebody still had water, they would use that person's shower and just, you know, combine their resources, which is why it's so good to come up with a, a plan with your neighbors and the people in your community as well. Yeah. Now back to meat here, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned to store your meat with nitrates. I'm going to ask what might be considered a dumb question here, but the nitrates I understand are very harmful. You don't want to eat nitrate or you don't want to drink water with nitrates in it. That's why people go get their well water tested every year or six months or whatever. But obviously there's the nitrates work in meat. Uh, why is that? 
it's a type of a preservative and it's commonly used in commercially available meats. In fact, you have to look pretty hard for a label that says no nitrates or nitrites. Uh, you can get uncured bacon without it. You know, you can get a lot of bacon products with it. There's also a concern by some and, and uh, that it can be a carcinogen. So when I buy commercially available bacon or foods like that or hot dogs, I will buy it without the sodium nitrate and sodium nitrite. And that's really a reason why I don't cure my own meat. I just prefer not to have that and put that in my body, not when I have so much available uh, game, wild game that I've harvested myself that I can preserve with means that don't require those. those uh, now, are these the same nitrates that are in well water? Because you, you, I've been, I understand you don't want to drink water with nitrates. I don't know anything about nitrates in well water. Okay, let, let's move on here. Um, okay, so I really like what you have said about uh, freeze drying food. Let's go back to freeze drying food here. You know, if I had it my way and I had the money and I actually had the time, you know what I'd like to do is I would like to spend a whole entire month from sunup to sundown every day cooking all the food that I like. Spaghetti with jalapenos, olives, uh, different types of stews, all kinds of food. And I would just freeze dry it uh, when the sun goes down or whenever I'm tired of cooking and start the next day. And then I would have enough to last for a whole entire year. What do you think of that? I know that's idealistic, but I'd love to do that. Well, I think it's a great idea. And contrary to the commercially available freeze-dried foods, you can make yours without sodium. You can make yours that will fit yes, your you medical sensitivities, your dietary needs food sensitivities. And that's the brilliance of coming up with your own food supply is you can suit your family's expectations and requirements. And there's nothing holding you back there. So if you've got a kid in your family, that's absolutely not going to eat a kind of soup or stew with peas in it, guess what? You can leave them out <laughs> and yeah. avoid all the drama, set some aside for them. And again, I, I found that if I use really good fresh ingredients and, and aromatic herbs, I don't need the salt anyway. So salt is a concern, particularly if water might be in short supply, because it's going to take a lot of water to process a lot of these foods that have the sodium in them. Also, if you want to have a good supply of protein, which you should, that requires adequate amounts of water as well. But in the book, I tell you how to start with a well-stocked pantry. And if you have that, you'll find that almost nine out of 10 times, if there's something you wanna make, if you followed my instructions for this type of pantry and say, you just don't feel like going out and getting food that night, or you don't feel like cooking, you can just go right into your pantry and what you need is there. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot cheaper too, as much Way as I cheaper. enjoy going out to eat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned that uh, chocolate, peanut butter, and honey do not freeze dry well, but yet I know people who freeze dry ice cream sandwiches, and that's probably got a lot of chocolate in there. So why would the chocolate not freeze dry very well, but the ice cream sandwiches do? Well, chocolate and chocolate flavoring are two different things, right? So yeah. while chocolate's not going to freeze dry, but I have right now... Freeze, I am freeze drying a whole five trays of ice cream sandwiches. 
So mm. I have them cut up in pieces and these are the Neapolitan ones. So they look really cool when I put them in a jar for display. My son uses them for his kart racing team. We've got a big event coming out now and they look really cool and they taste really good. But it's ice cream and ice cream uh, does freeze dry very well. And it doesn't matter what the flavor is. So ice cream is something that lends itself to it. Honey will make a huge mess. And there's no need to freeze dry honey anyway, because it lasts forever properly stored. Can I ice uh, freeze dry a Nestle Crunch ice cream bar? Um, or does that have real chocolate in it? You can, I would think you could freeze dry that. I mean, again, oh. that has a real chocolate. And the thing with yeah. freeze drying ice cream bars, this is why they don't work. You don't necessarily... Um, want, well, and I know some people just freeze dry little scoops of ice cream. You have to do it really fast though. The ice cream has to be super, super hard and the trays have to be really cold. And it's best to have somebody helping you to get those on the trays because if the ice cream starts running, you're just going to have a big runny mess on the trays. Uh -huh. And that's one of the reasons I honestly haven't done um, any little ice cream balls, which would be delicious, but the ice cream sandwiches are really good and just set them with the, the, you know, cracker part touching the tray and they're amazing. I mean, it has all the flavor of the original ice cream. And that's a really cool thing about freeze drying foods is they don't lose any of their flavor. It's, it's really a, a neat process. And I, I love my freeze dryer. What about meat? Or do you think something like a steak or prime rib would be suitable for freeze drying? Because I know prime rib has a lot of fat in it. That's why it tastes so good. Yeah, I would not freeze dry prime rib. I wouldn't freeze dry steak. I would have to say it's really hard to get that to reconstitute, especially since so little of the there's so little surface area per amount of meat you're using. I have freeze dried venison. For instance, I have a outdoor skills gathering I'm going to later this month. So I freeze dry some venison with taco seasoning. So we're going to throw that together and make taco salads. And it's, you know, if you're going to freeze dry something though, that has more fat in it, like uh, beef, ground beef, then I've heard people say that what they do is rinse it multiple times and get as much of the fat out of it as they can. So I have freeze dried some venison and made and made that because that's very lean so i don't have to go to those extra steps but if i want to preserve meat for longer periods of time i just do the pressure canning and then i can throw them into anything that i need to do yeah now why would you want to freeze dry raw meat and i like what you said in your book if you're going to freeze dry raw meat put a label on it uh, especially somebody like me who can't see of course i'd figure it out right away by the time i put it in my mouth why would you want to freeze dry raw meat though well, I, I freeze dried cooked venison and made taco meat. So all I have to do is reconstitute it. Yeah. One thing I do is I freeze dry raw eggs. And the reason I freeze dry raw eggs, a lot of people freeze dry scrambled eggs that are already cooked. And that's mm -hmm. a great idea if you want to take them camping or something. But if you need some eggs for recipes or for other things um, besides just scrambled eggs, this gives you some some latitude. You can use them if you want to bake. You can use them if you want to make a spaghetti carbonara, which I think I have uh, instructions on in the recipe book as a follow-up. So there are a lot of things you can want to use eggs for, but not necessarily want them scrambled. And then by all means, and by then for sure, I, I label raw. I put it in capital letters on there. I say raw eggs, and then people know. 
Yeah, let's talk about uh, pickling and canning real quick. Why would you want to pickle your food? Uh, any idea other than the fact that maybe some people like the taste of cucumbers when they're pickled. That's what pickles are made of is cucumbers. Well, you know, if you want to preserve your harvest, let's say you have an, a, a summer garden you use every year and you have your, you know, your asparagus, your carrots and you know, you can pretty much pickle any vegetables. You can use your harvest without having to put it up to process for long term. And it's readily available right there in your freeze dryer. And you can also do some fermentation. I grew a lot of cabbage, cut that up and just mash it up with some salt, let that ferment. And then you've got something that you can have readily available right in your freeze dryer and then set some of your other food aside. But this is a way to enjoy your harvest without eating it immediately. It'll be good for, you know, months in your refrigerator. And that way you don't have to put it away, but you still have some fresh food. And a lot of people like the pickled carrots and all that. Yes. Uh, pickled corned beef, pickled meat, pickled beef, corned beef is excellent. Now, why would you want to can tomatoes in citric acid? And obviously, there must be a way to eat the canned tomatoes without tasting the citric acid. I didn't even know you were supposed to do that in tomatoes. Tomatoes are right on the edge there between, you know, foods that are high in acid can be hot water bath because the, ac the acidity uh, is makes an inhospitable environment for bacteria to grow and develop. Tomatoes are just right on the edge. So to make it safe, you want to add some citric acid or fresh lemon juice. And I've never tasted it in there, the lemon juice. I've never even tasted the lemon juice, for instance, when I um, package, when I can some, I use it in my jams and jellies, that sort of thing. And you just don't taste it. How much citric acid do you want to put in there? It depends on how much you're putting per jar, um, you know, and how big the containers are. So, okay. you know, yeah. And or I, I think for a quart jar of tomatoes, I think it's a teaspoon of citric acid. Okay. Now, why would you want to take the seeds out of the tomatoes when you can them? Just uh, because they taste better or what? Flavor. Yeah. And it's not because you're canning them. Even if you're making your own tomato sauce, you want to get the seeds out of there as best you can uh, just for flavor. Okay. Now, uh, you mentioned to heat the temperature up so that the microorganisms do not get into your jars. Uh, what would microorganisms do? Well, and to kill the microorganisms that would develop in the food yes. uh, or that might already be in the food, they're going to no. spoil the food and they can make you very sick. You can also get botulism from something that hasn't been properly preserved. And in a situation where you might not be able to get medical assistance, something like that could prove fatal. Yes. Um, here's a dumb question again. What is botulism? Botulism, I forgot, I don't remember the name of the bacteria, but it makes you very sick, nausea, vomiting, and it can be a fatal oh, disease. Oh, yeah, we don't want that. Now, why would you, uh, okay, so one question I do have, when you're canning and you take the jars out, obviously you want to make them, you want to let them cool down and then figure out if they sealed or not. When I was a kid, I used to love putting my thumb or finger on and just tapping it and, you know, having the lid go click, 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 click. So how long do you, obviously you don't want to do that too much or it's never going to seal. 
But as a kid, I didn't know that. Anyway, how do you, how long do you let it cool down before you decide, okay, this jar is not going to seal? Oh, if it's not going to seal, if all the other ones have sealed and they're cool, uh, if, if they've cooled down and they haven't sealed, they're not going to. So you can either use that or reuse it right away or just run it through and process it again. Do you have to empty all your fruit out and do that again or just run no, it through? No, just them? run okay. it through again. Okay. Now, if you are canning for somebody that's diabetic, because I know that it is recommended, for example, if you can peaches, apricots, or something like that, you want to put sugar in there. A, what happens if you don't put sugar? B, what if you're canning for someone that's diabetic? Uh, how do you remedy the whole sugar thing? Honestly, I use a small fraction of the sugar that it calls for. I mean, there are recipes that call for heavy, medium, or light syrup, and I probably... Um, have the light syrup recipe. I don't know what it is right now, but I go very, very light on the syrup. In fact, sometimes I probably don't even add it when I do my peaches because the peaches are so naturally sweet anyway. Yeah. Now, when you say syrup, are you talking corn syrup or what kind of syrup? Just using um, just cane sugar syrup where you make it by mixing a certain amount with water. So the less sugar you have, the lighter the syrup. Okay. Now, I want to talk about these canning processors. My mom used to can traditionally on the stove, and she must have had a huge pot. Unfortunately, I didn't pay too much attention. I was just a little kid. But now they've got these processors, and I've seen them where you actually go outside and use these processors, these canners. Um, and you said, I think you recommended, I believe, 112 degrees. Now, are there talking gauges out there for a blind person like me, or how would I know that it's at the right temperature? Okay, I think you're referring to pressure canning. Yes. Okay, yeah, I actually have a pressure canner, and a lot of, and I have a glass top stove. And a lot of people say, oh, you can't do it on a glass top stove. Yes, you, yes can. you can. When I lived in California, I had a beautiful gas range, and you know, but I don't have that here. I, I simplified my life. And I'm just careful how I put it on the on the cooktop. I fill the water once it's already on there so it's not heavy and I don't set it down and it's all of a sudden too heavy or I set it down harder than I might because again, it might be difficult to carry for some people. So I just process that inside. And interestingly, I never relied on the gauge. I, oh. the when I was in California, I was supposed to have, because I was at about sea level there, and yeah. I was supposed to get to 10 pounds of pressure at that altitude. It never registered more than five pounds. And just like now when I'm up here, I'm supposed to process at 15 pounds. It never goes past 10 on the register. But you can also go by the rattles. You don't need your eyes. You, you have working ears. Oh, yes. I remember the rattles. And the rattles you want about four times per minute. So if you're sitting there and you hear it rattle maybe once every 30 seconds, obviously you need to turn the heat up. So how you're going to watch the time, I guess if you want to count to 60 and then, you know, use a finger every time that it rattles to keep track so you can count, uh, you know, two different things at one time, then, you know, but you, you'll get it. You'll get a feeling for it. If you just hear it rattle, say every, you know, 10, 15 seconds, something in there, that'll keep you right about where you need to be. Yeah. And how long should you put that in the process? About 20 minutes, probably once it starts boiling, you put it in and then wait for about 20 minutes, make sure it's rattling. 
four times. A it minute. needs well first. It needs to vent. You get the water heated and it vents for ten minutes. Then once it starts rattling, that's when you check. That's when you start the timer for the <laughs> actual processing and what you're processing and the size of the jars is how you determine the time. I have all the tables for that in the book. Okay, very good. Let's talk about the last thing because I know you're in a hurry. Uh, glassing. Uh, what is the purpose of glassing eggs? Water glassing eggs is something I just started doing this last year as an experiment. I have a large glass vessel that I purchased. I've seen people do show pictures of, of a few eggs, like three or four in, say, a quart-sized canning jar. But to me, that's not a good use of the canning jar and kind of a waste of space. But you take a pickling lime and you can get that, you know, in any canning department at a store on Amazon. And it's... Um, and then what you do is you just use that and I think it's a tablespoon per quart of water and you pour that in there and then you put that in with the eggs. It has to be unwashed eggs that have never been, that are not store-bought. They have to be very fresh. And if you have uh, friends that have chickens or have your own, you don't want to wash off the eggs because they have something on there called the bloom which is, it comes on them from the, from the hen and that keeps bacteria out of the eggs. So you don't want to wash that off. And then you just put them in that jar and let them sit. And I've actually had them for about eight or nine months in the jar. And we did a Facebook live presentation on my uh, podcast page, the red hot chili prepper and where we took them out and I showed people exactly how they looked when they came out. I cooked some, and some of the yolks fall apart a little bit. The yolks can get runny, but if you open them carefully, you can still fry them and get that appearance of the fried egg. The second batch that I did, a couple of them had broken and I hadn't kept a good eye on it and I ended up tossing them out. So you have to really check and make sure that the egg shells um, are hard enough to put in there because if you have your own backyard flock, you know, some might not be eating the calcium they need. So make sure the shells are thick because you don't want them breaking in there. A couple eggs breaking can ruin your whole batch. This is why I'm not a huge fan of putting them in large containers. Some people say they like to store them in five or eight gallon buckets. And then the problem is, you know, the fresher ones are on the top and it takes forever to get to the others. So I just oh. beat them like I'm going to scramble them. And then I put them in my freeze dryer and turn them into a powder. So that's why you say don't have the thin shells with the thick shells then. Right. You just, well, yeah, you just don't want the thin shells in there at all because they can break really easily, particularly okay. if, if you have to have happen to have one that's near the bottom and then the weight of the other eggs yep. goes, you know, gets on top of them so and then you it's going to break it. Or, uh, I don't know, get a container that you buy at the store, fill up that container, don't put anything on top of it, then shut the lid. And hopefully in about nine months or so, the eggs will be good. Well, they're good from the beginning. Oh, I see what you're saying. They'll still be good. Yeah. yeah. And then you can check on it and smell and make sure the water's okay. And in fact, the batch that I had that I, that was successful was a couple of them even had broken. And what I thought was really interesting was the pickling lime actually cooked the inside of the eggs. So they looked like they were hard boiled. Obviously I didn't use that, but you just rinse them off and open the egg and then just use them however you want. Now, why would you glass the eggs instead of freeze dry out of curiosity? Because some people don't want to pay a couple thousand dollars for a freeze okay. dryer. 
Yeah. Now let's talk about the bloom that's in the side of the eggshells. Why do they take that out when they send it to the stores? Any uh, idea? They just because they don't want to have eggs that are dirty. I mean, there can be some dirt from the hens on there. They just wash everything. Oh, okay. And in the process of cleaning the eggs, um, the bloom obviously comes off. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about? Again, the book that she wrote, and there will there is a link in the show notes. Food strategies. Uh, let's see. What is the title of that again, real quick? I have a series. It's called the Red Hot Chili. C H I L L Y. The Red Hot Chili Prepper. It's a survival series, and the first book is food preservation strategies. Yeah. Okay. And food the second preservation is, strategies. Yeah. The second is Doomsday Dining Recipes from Camp Apocalypse. If you're interested in. Um, the pioneer stories. I have a book called the lost frontier handbook. We're actually relaunching. We're going to talk one. about that later in another podcast, by the way. Yeah. I look forward to that. And then also a book called federalism, how decentralization can save America. Yeah. And all of those are on my website, suzannecsherman.com. Good stuff. And I'm going to put a link to that and I'm going to put a link to uh, food preservations and strategies in the show notes as well. Is there anything else that I glossed over or anything I glossed over, anything you want to talk about that I didn't cover? Well, I think if people are really <laughs> unaware of the need to preserve food for the long term right now, they're in for a rude awakening. I think we've seen, you know, disaster upon disaster, food processing plants across the country. Right now, they're having drought conditions in northwestern America, meaning there's going to be a shortage of potatoes. A lot of the wheat we get comes from Eastern Europe. And India now, because of the shortages, is not going to be exporting wheat at all. We've had avian flu resulting in the culling of millions of chickens. During the COVID um, issue, we, had, uh, we saw experience of meat shortages because I think four companies own almost all of the food processing plants. So, you know, there are going to be more shortages. And even if you think food's always going to be readily available, one thing we can't deny is rampant inflation. So if you can put, a, no. if you can put food away now, and even though food's expensive now, I get it. I know it's hard to put things away. You might be really glad that you sacrificed some other things so you could put food away 10 years from now. I like the fact that you mentioned that because my mom actually, and I didn't know this, my dad lost his job twice, once when I was in elementary and another time when I was in junior high. And my mom told me that we definitely had a lot of food storage that we were eating out of. I had no idea. Of course, she stored a lot of meat in the deep freeze. We didn't have freeze dryers back then. Well, commercial companies may have, but they weren't available to the public. And yeah, that's a good point, Suzanne. I'm glad you mentioned the inflation. And you might lose a job and, uh-oh, uh, I barely have enough money to pay for my house. How am I going to pay for food? It's like that song from Tanya Tucker, Some Kind of Trouble, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. You know, I tell people that if they, if they think that the government's going to be there to help them, regardless of the catastrophe or calamity, that's fine. But you also have to consider, again, there could be job losses. How many people sure. lost their jobs and their businesses in, you know, 2020, 2021 with all the businesses that shut down? And also you could have an illness, somebody that could come down with a, a medical diagnosis that could be financially devastating. And then you're, you're faced with the, 
really uh, unpleasant choice of feeding your family or getting medical treatment. So, you know, it can be a very personal reason for preparing. It doesn't have to do with, doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with social unrest or EMPs or, you know, you know, pick your calamity. But these are things that happen to every family, loss of employment and illness. And like yeah. I've said, it could be that there's a storm and I don't want to go out. I've been snowed in my place for about a week, if not longer before. And my neighbors kept saying, can we dig you out? And I said, nope, I'm good because <laughs> nobody can come down my driveway either. So, you know, it, it's there can be any reason to prepare. It doesn't have to be a doomsday prepper, apocalyptic scenario. It can be, hey, I, I got laid off. And you by know, the and way, uh, there might be a time, it could happen, let's hope not, but it could, where the government says, okay, we don't have enough money for Social Security. The government shut down. Uh, you know, they may just, for political reasons, not give you your Social Security check. Yeah, hopefully you've got some food on hand or you know someone that and does. Good point. We've seen government shutdowns before where checks were delayed. Yes. So if you have a neighbor you might not be on friendly terms with now, wait till they can't feed their kids and they know that you can and wonder why you're you're doing well and they're starving. So, yep. you know, also being evangelical, get if you buy one of these books, get a copy or two for your friends or neighbors. Because Good idea. a prepared community is going to be a safe community. Yep. Well, anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we're good. Thank you, Kevin. I always enjoy coming on with you. I look forward to coming back. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Suzanne. We will talk to you later, folks. Thank you for listening to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. Check him out on Facebook at Canning Plus 7. That's Canning Plus 7 with the plus symbol instead of the word plus on the Canning Plus 7 Facebook page.